I'm Ingrid Delamar Kenny. I'm the CEO and founder of The Method. She's also my wife and she's the smartest woman I've ever met. First of all, she's my mom and she's really cool. She's all that and she's a superhero. Never mind CEO, she's gangster. This is the Pardon My French podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about wellness, fitness, Frenchism, and lifestyle, a Trey fucking chic gangster podcast. Hosted by fitness and wellness French hedonism guru and creator of The Method, The Body, yours truly, Ingrid Delamar Kenny, live from Monte Carlo, Monaco. On this show, you'll find a mix of audio entertainment, including listener and audience questions answered about health wellness, lifestyle, family, and relationships, and my French holistic tips to be healthy, have your best body, and transform both your body and your mindset into the happiest ever, as well as living la belle vie lifestyle like a chic French gangster. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Pardon My French podcast. I am live from Monaco, and I am Ingrid Delamarcani, your host. Today is a very special episode. I have released, as you may know, my memoir, The Memoir of a Chic Gangster, Fuck My Life, in December 2020. And today, I am doing a reading of chapter six, which was one of the chapters you, the audience, and my readers have requested we speak about the most. Uh, I think by far this is one of the hardest chapters to read, uh, and for good reason. This chapter introduces you to my first days in prison. If you don't know my story, I really suggest you get the book, Fuck My Life. It was first new release on Amazon for biography and women autobiography, Uh, when it came out. It is uh, available on Kindle version or hardcover, so you can get one or the other, and you can find it on Amazon, Fuck My Life. So if you haven't read the book yet, you've definitely listened to me before. If you're already on episode 43, you know that I've done 14 months in federal prison in the United States, and this is my story. Um, it covers way more than going to prison, of course. Um, but in a nutshell, this, epi this episode, I was going to say no, this chapter um, is definitely one of the hardest. And you will understand why when I start reading it. And then I'm going to answer just a few questions from readers and from my audience that you've sent over the, few the past few months. Um, how else can I update you? So yes, you may have noticed I have not had an episode since our last episode which was a few months ago and part of my French hasn't been as regular as it was back in 2019 and 2020 for good reason we have expanded our gangster chic line operation and we now have a huge warehouse well huge warehouse it's huge for me but it's you know our little business is getting slightly bigger so I've been really really busy with that um, but I am going to really do my best to try and have more regularity with this podcast because it turns out so many of you 
are telling me how much you love it and how much you how much value you get out of it so i you know want to make um i want to vow to be a little bit more regular with it uh and with that said um let's go and read chapter six so chapter six is on page what page is it on you would think I would have it marked for the podcast, but no, because this is how I do things. You get everything in real time with me. So you will notice that in the book, there are actually pictures of Danbury, um, the FCI where I was. So you will be able to get a visual of my cell, for example, and the unit where I was, that I really refer to very often. Let's get on to chapter six. It's called, You Can't Sit With Us. Russia Red found me in Chow Hall. When she walks by, inmates have a way of clearing the passage for her. She's like an Amazon moving through the wild. Her eyes are cold blue. Her lips are scrumptious and plump. She goes to get her special tray and sits across from me and Gabriel. She ignores Gabriel and asks how it went in my unit. She barks instructions at me. I have shit to do. Get uniforms, get commissary, get an email address. What? Mm, no, Russia. No email for me. I'm not allowed to have one. Long story short, they know I'm too good with computers and I can hack. I know my way around the web, so they make sure to restrict my access to email. I would have my 300 full minutes per month. Russia glances around the mess hall. You see that blonde tall lady who looks like you? That's Vika. She won't like you because she's a piano teacher here, and now you want her job. She says she's Jewish. I don't believe her, but we used to know each other in Brooklyn. Russia's English is very broken, so I make her repeat important information to make sure I didn't miss anything. Russia only hangs with Eastern Europeans, Ruta and Tati. They're younger. Like me, they are somewhat under her wing. I'm instructed to stay away from the other Russians. This woman from Belarus in particular. I forget her name, but she manages to still run a scam in prison. Russia glances at me. Why you no eat your bread and your apple? I'm not hungry. Her eyes, blue eyes, scold me. Stop acting like baby, she barks. You have to eat. If you get sick, you don't get visit from the kids. Eat now. I start chewing, but I want to barf. My first night in prison was terrible. I can still feel a burning sensation in my heart. I cry silently for hours, afraid of being heard. I hear the unit door opening a couple times, as well as the sound of the keys and the heavy steps of the guards. I remember the lights of the lamp in my eyes, the stress of that guard nearing the bed. The breathing of strangers around me continues nonstop. Miss Walker snores. I want morning to come so my lawyer can get me out of here. I don't even know if this is morning yet, and there are no windows in this room. Time doesn't pass. I will soon find out that time simply doesn't pass behind bars. If you are a jailbird, time stops. Most of the female inmates in Danbury Medium Security Prison learn to leave their lives behind. They create a new life in prison, and they never think about the outside. Some of them even create new families. Some of them have a jail mommy or a jail daughter or a jail son. Yeah, some of these ladies are legally entitled to continue their hormones treatment. 
when they started transitioning to becoming males. Many of them have nicknames. Red Russia or Red, Carla was Flaka, Gabriel was Gordo, which means fat guy. Some other girl was sassy and another was dirty. I had two names, one bestowed on me by the Latina community, which I got to belong to. I'll explain how later. They called me Flaquita, very skinny girl. And the other name given to me by the African-American community, at least the ones I was tight with, Blondie. It came a time when I heard Flaquita or Blondie called out across the yard, and I would turn and answer to it like it was my actual name. The first few days, I was living on standby, waiting for that call announcing that I'm being released. I walked the yard, sobbing under my breath, probably making ugly faces attempting to hide the fact that I was a sissy. I was not terribly scared most of the time. I was desperate. I missed my kids terribly, excruciatingly. I didn't know how to live or to be without them. I heard my name and unit number called on the loudspeaker. I was told to report to visiting. But what? Joe can't visit today. Gabriel rushes to me and explains, I need my uniform. I need to put my still-toe shoes on and I need to report to that building over there next to the warden's office. I report and I'm led into a back room. I'm told I need to get naked and I'm patted down by a female guard. Then she says, take off your panties, squat and cough. What? What the fuck is squat and cough? At first, I don't, re I don't feel embarrassment. I feel sheer panic. I heard things about females in prison, about inmates and guards. I look around wondering if there was a broomstick she might stick up my ass and rape me. I legitimately thought so. No one gives you a fucking handbook before you go to jail. And there's no fucking orientation explaining procedure. She's a fucking cunt too. It's C.O. Perkins. Keisha Perkins. Right before she asked to see my asshole, she commented on my nails. I hadn't had time to get my acrylic short square nails removed, so I was wearing a chic and fancy French manicure still. She asked where I got it done. Fuck you, you cunt. I get it done in a place you will never even go. I tell her to go to 10 Perfect Nails in Brooklyn and ask for Vanessa. Vanessa probably wasn't even the girl's real name. She was Chinese, and like every girl in that salon, she changed her name like strippers do. Vanessa, Amy, Sally, Dolly. I squat and cough while the cunt examines my asshole. I can tell she, she takes pleasure in it. Not sexual pleasure, mind you. She just enjoyed my embarrassment. Like all of the prison staff, she read my probation report, and she knows I come from a rich neighborhood. She enjoyed the power trip. Many CEOs did. A huge metal door separates us from a visiting room. I can see it's empty from the little window. I'm scared. Why am I being brought to visiting on a non-visiting day? This woman waiting for me is dressed so conservatively. She's very tall and thin and is standing there in a separate room. She has a briefcase. I come in and she introduces herself. She's here on behalf of the French ambassador to check up on me. I'm dumbfounded. The French government is concerned, she tells me. My incarceration is the subject of discord between the US and France. The French government will use all of its diplomatic privileges to make my incarceration easier and plant as many diplomatic obstacles up the American government's ass to motivate my early release. I spend time with the French consulate lady. Over time, 
She will visit me three to four times a week on non-visiting days to allow me to spend some time away from general population. She says we can chat or I can bring a book and just relax in her diplomatic presence. The room we are in is privileged, which means no recording devices are supposed to be planted to listen to conversations. I pass messages to Joe through her, to my attorneys, and we discuss my next legal steps. She eventually becomes a friend. She tells me about her kids. We speak French and we have a lot in common. She's genuinely compassionate and outraged that I'm behind bars. She asks me questions about the inside. The inside is a parallel world. I tell her about lesbian couples, women who are actually men. I don't name names. There's a quote about that. I honor it. The first visiting day comes five days after I went in, but it seems like one month passed. The notion of time is like Groundhog Day in there. I try to look decent to see my babies. I'm stressed. I hear that if it gets foggy, visiting is canceled. If there's bad weather outside, visiting is canceled. If someone picks a fight with me, visiting is canceled. I walk a straight line because I fear the cancellation of visiting hours and I will live with that fear for the length of my incarceration. On that first visiting day, five days after I went in, I walk into visiting after squatting and coughing out of my asshole and here they are, Dylan, Savannah and Joe with my baby Dakota in his arms. She's one year old and she is in diapers. I start crying at the sight of them. The kids are dressed so strangely. I can see Savannah put her outfit together by herself. She mixed colors pretty badly. Joe had a five-day-old five beard and looked exhausted, like he hasn't slept. Mommy, mommy, what happened to your hair? Why is it so short? Savannah is the most shocked by my appearance. I lost weight immediately. I look thin and frail, and she comments on my smell. She thinks I smell weird. I remember that smell. It was a weird smell, like the uniforms were washed with plastic or rubber. I'm allowed to hug the kids and hold them, but I'm only allowed to kiss Joe once when he arrives and when he leaves. And we cannot touch nor hold hands. And that's okay, because he's not that affectionate to start with. But he warns me. He's afraid that it would stop the visit. I'm telling you, we lived in fear of visiting being cancelled. It terrorized me more than rape. I hold on to Dakota the tightest. She smells like my home. I inhale her as much as I can. She needs a diaper change, so I ask for the bathroom. The guard, a male, one of the rare kind ones, looks at me with compassion. You aren't allowed to take her, he informs me. Joe has to change the diaper. But Joe doesn't know how, or at least he can't do it as well as I can. I want to change my baby. I start sobbing uncontrollably. Joe takes Dakota and Savannah and goes to the changing room. Savannah helped him change the diaper. She's six years old, but she's literally a little homemaker. They come back. Dakota reaches for me and cries till I cradle her, and she falls asleep. Dylan wants to discuss what's for dinner. Joe will make spaghetti and meatballs, and Dylan is pleased. He does not ask why I'm here. He asks when I'm coming home, but dismisses my answer. He jerks his body back and forth. I touch him gently, like I used to when he would do this, but it doesn't stop the jerking. I start crying again. It's only been five days and he's regressing. I feel sheer panic and I start crying and crying. 
Savannah is desperate to see me smile, and she holds my face in her tiny little hands. Mama, you're strong, she says. You have to be here. It's okay. I'm going to come back, to come back tomorrow, Mama. I stop crying. I should be a better mom. I should stop selfishly panicking my kids with tears. Joe gets impatient with me. He tells me to stop crying and pray. Say to Helim, he begins. Fuck you, Joe. Fuck your fucking religion and your voodoo rabbis. Fuck you, Joe. We argue and then he apologizes. It's 2.45, the clock on the wall says. The other CEO, that bold asshole, Mr. Hitler, he's legit had Hitler's mustache, though his real name was Mr. Hayden. He announces 10 minutes. Visiting day's hand is ending. My heartbeat accelerates, my legs go numb, and my hands go sweaty. Dakota is fast asleep on my chest. I squeeze her so hard, I feel like my heart's about to be ripped out of my chest. I try to wake her, but Joe says she hasn't slept this deeply since I left the house. Fucking kill me now. I wanted to die. The guard comes to the few visitors and says he's going to start the lineup. We have to say goodbye. Dylan gives me a tight hug. He communicates emotions at this point and says, I love you, mommy. Please come home. This place gives me a stomachache. I need to poop. Dylan's digestive system is fucked up. Being on the spectrum starts in the gut. He's intolerant to cheese. He often needs to go to the bathroom for number two. And usually his stress levels dictate his bowel movement. Savannah, my angel, with her beautiful long brown hair and those big exotic brown eyes, looks up at me like I'm her hero and hugs me tight. Mommy, you're going to come home. I won't go to Dunkin' Donuts without you, I promise. And we will go to do our nails because I've never seen your nails looking so bad. I love you, mommy. I love you too, baby. And don't forget, babies, mom, mommy loves you all the way to the moon and Hashem in the sky around all the planets and back. Hashem is God in Hebrew. They say it at the same time as me. Like Buzz Lightyear, mommy? Dylan asks. Yes, baby. Like Buzz Lightyear. Will you buy me a Buzz Lightyear? Yes, baby, I will. The hardest moment in my life comes next. And I don't wish it on any mother living on this earth. My baby, Dakota, I wake her gently and I smell her again. My tears are dripping on her chubby cheeks. Her baby fist is gripped to my ugly prison uniform shirt and I try to open her fist to release the fabric and hand her to her Joe. But she resists and she grabs my shirt with all her might and she starts screaming. No, no, mama, no, mama, no. She cries hysterically. I'm going to faint. My heart feels like it's being ripped out of my chest by a strong, evil, bare hand. Joe grabs her abruptly and wants to kill. I want to kill him. Be fucking gentle, no? She's a fucking baby. You cunt. You want your visiting rights to be revoked? Joe snaps. He apologizes again. Joe is verbally abusive and he can't help it. His father's a fucking monster, if you ask me. It's sheer luck his boys didn't come out to become serial killers. Joe's father was a wife beater and a violent one at that, with the venom of evil instead of a tongue. I go back inside, but not before I'm stripped naked and have to squat and cough again. They check my tongue and my throat too. I don't give a fuck. I'm too ripped to, to shreds to care. When you go out of visiting, it's no movement time, so the yard is empty. I walk back to my unit, crying, and by day five, 
I've cried so much. I noticed I lost almost all of my lashes. Like I fucking care. I'm led into my unit and Caroline Gabriel run to me. How are the kids? Como te fue con tus bebés? I cry and I cry and I cry. I skip dinner. Nothing anyone can say or do matters. I don't shower. I don't change. I cry. The skin around my eyes is red. I get a rash from crying so much. Somehow, no one notices. I cry, but I hide it well. When they ask about the rash, all these fucking parasites in there, they're scared of bacteria and contagion. How fucking ironic. I tell them I have allergies to the detergent. The Dominican ladies find out I'm a lawyer and I speak Spanish. Flaquita, ¿me ayudarás con mi apelación? They want me to help them with their appeals. I say yes. And I spend my days when I'm not crying in the law library typing habeas corpus motions for the Boricua and Dominicans doing hard times for drug crimes. Many of them on conspiracy charges. I know it probably won't go anywhere. The law is not on their side. And the system even less. But I file them anyway. In there, they live for new laws being passed. There is one they are all waiting for that could release them immediately. I give them hope. One of them reads tarot cards. And she reads my cards. Ya, 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 mujer. Tú no te quedas aquí. Hay un hombre poderoso que te va a sacar pronto. She says, holy shit, there's a powerful man who's going to take you out of here. You aren't going to be here long. I press her. Pero cuando? When? The cards are uncertain. Russia comes to my unit. She's not allowed to, but she's here. And she plants her tall body in front of me and her huge tits in my face. You eat today? You look too skinny and sick. You want to be sick for your kids' visit? I shake my head. She pays people who work in the kitchen to steal fruits. She brings me an apple and an orange and she stands there to watch me eat it. I want to puke, but this bitch, she scares the fuck out of me. So I eat both. She smiles. Holy fuck, this mega bitch smiles? Fuck. If me eating a fucking orange makes a smile, I'll eat one every day. Russia is the only person who ever gave me something like food or makeup or tea and never ever asked to be paid for it. My next visit, Carla, Flaka comes to me. You know you need to wear makeup for your babies, she says. They need to see how bonita their mama is, so they don't worry. She tells me her story. She has two daughters. She passed the border illegally twice and got caught. On the third strike, she got four years in prison. But the kids and the dad live in the U.S. and she needed to be with them. She can't get a green card because she has a, a record. Carla says she's in jail for being an illegal alien and repeat offender for coming into the U.S. illegally. I believe her, but I don't at the same time. I sense there are drugs involved, but she does look more like an innocent mule than a drug dealer. She shows me her kids and her husband. Unlike her, they all look so American. She says her oldest has cancer, leukemia, and her name is Vanessa. My heart dropped. She cannot visit at the moment because she's under, undergoing chemo. But they will bring her the following week on a non-visiting day. She's attached to tubes and a mask when she visits. I'm devastated for her. I hold her hand. And for a second, I thank God. I thank the God I lost faith in. When I walked into jail for keeping my kids healthy. I let Carla do my makeup. Yes, inmates can wear makeup. They sell some Revlon expired shit in commissary. I go to visiting and right away Savannah's face lights up. Mom, you're okay. You're wearing makeup. 
visiting is harder each time. It's always the same song and dance. I press Joe for news from my lawyer. Sometimes he's full of hope. Sometimes he makes it sound like they threw away the key and I'll be here for four years. Then he tells me, if you didn't use non-kosher tomato sauce and you went to the mikvah like you were supposed to, this wouldn't have happened. Really? You dumb fuck. You're telling me I'm in prison because of fucking Hans tomato sauce and missing going to a purifying Jewish bath in rainwater after my period? You dumb fucking fuck. I remember thinking, what is going to happen to me if my life depends on Jewish fucking cult shit? It's totally delusional. On visiting day, Savannah told me there was a weird gathering with black hat rabbis in my house, and they were doing weird stuff around the dining room table, using some of our pictures in our picture frames. I was scared. Each time Joe came to see me, he would speak of a mystical Rabbi Weinberg he met. And when he goes to see him, he comes out knowing I will come out. I literally imagine he had been recruited in a sect like the Manson family. Inside, I dodge bullet and bitches want to fight. Other ones, others want to fuck, and some start conspiracy theories. Blondie, why are you getting visits on non-visiting days? Are you an undercover cop? Yes, Mandy, I'm an undercover cop, you dipshit. I acted all tough, but the truth is I was scared. Sure, when I was feeling attacked, I acted tough. But all I had to do was think of a fucking mop and what another inmate could do to me with it. Around here, mop handles were weapons. They weren't just used to clean toilet floors, if you know what I mean. Speaking of toilet, Blondie had to be on bathroom duty like everyone else. The day I found out it was my turn, I chewed my acrylic nails and ripped them off. I fucking gagged my way through every stall. Imagine shit on the floor, shit on the walls, period blood splattered all over. We used hygienic pads to wash the floor and that was epic. You know what else is epic? Taking a shower with a bunch of hishi lesbians who were horny as fuck. It took me months to not be scared of being gangbanged in the shower. I showered with my underwear on. Nothing else happened to me in the shower, but I did dodge a few bullets. When I couldn't protect myself, Russia handled it for me. She scared those motherfucker ghetto bitches. And when she didn't scare them, her bunkie, a big black woman, scared, scared them till they shit their pants. Gabriel was a nut job. Everyone said it. And I found him kind. I believe this story of being in love with the wrong girl who was herself under a pimp who got them both in trouble with drugs. Gabriel self said he was driving the car when they caught him and he never saw her again. He said he was raising her kids with her so he didn't mind she never contacted him or tried to help him out of jail. Gabriel prayed every day. I asked him if it was bar mitzvah. He said no. He became a boy later. When he, sees, when he sees his parents, he wears a skirt. His real name is Sylvia. I only found out he's Sylvia when they call his name at mail call. I'm shocked. I storm, out, I storm out of the unit. Gabriel runs after me and begs me to let him explain. He never made the transition. He is all woman, except the voice and the facial hair. He only started meds right before he got in. But they weren't legal meds, so... The Department of Prisons wouldn't allow him to continue the treatment. Gabriel talk crazy, talks crazy tales, but in prison, it's a twilight zone, so you believe it. Carla often tells me, no hablas con él, es un loco. Don't talk to him, he's a nut job. In fact, everyone dodges Gabriel because they think he's weird. I belong to a few pussies. 
the Latina mamas, the one who got in trouble helping out the father of their kids, the Latina gang ladies who are doing hard time and will probably go right back to their gang activities when they get out, and the Russians. I had a few African-American buddies. Cheryl's one of them. I'm still friends with her today. A few months down the line, Gabriel makes his move on me. I since have uncovered his many lies and also discovered it was in the psych unit before they, they moved him to five. His brother came to visit him and spoke to Joe on the way out. And it wasn't good news. His brother said, his sister is delusional. Sylvia's nuts. I walked away from Gabriel and he fell into a deep depression. But like Russia said, it was better this way. Some people were speculating I was Gabriel's new wifey. And this is the end of chapter six. Well, I hope this gave you enough insight into Fuck My Life. This is a tough chapter. And there are a few things that seem out of context, like the characters. So let me tell you a little bit about Russia Red. Russia Red is a woman that is still in my life today, but I protected her privacy. It is her choice. Um, she saved my life in prison. She took me under her wing under the craziest circumstances, and this is all told in the first chapters of the book. Gabrielle is a woman whose name was Sylvia, but she looked like a man, and she had the voice of a man and some facial hair as well. Um, and for the first few weeks or so, I thought she was an actual man who had made the transition. So I felt very betrayed when I found out her real name is Sylvia, and she was all female. Uh, down the line, she kind of like fell in love with me and tried to kiss me. And I got really, really scared and caught on to so many of her lies that I kind of stayed away from her after that. Um, there's a lot of drama in prison, so you have to try and stay out of it. But unfortunately, you force some relationships sometimes and they turn into some weird ass shit. So if anyone going to prison and I was to write a handbook, I would say, Try to forge as little relationship as possible. But I know none of you need that advice. Nobody's going to prison, right? One of you asked me, what was your book writing process? What was the hardest part? Love you. The Selfish Soul on Instagram. Thank you so much. Love you back. The book writing process was actually quite difficult for me in the sense that I think as a defense mechanism, and after having so much PTSD that remained untreated, I didn't really go to therapy after I got out of prison because I had to get back on with my life and take care of my kids. I had no time to have a pity party and kind of take care of my mental health. And I was fine. I think I was into this fight or flight mode. And so for many, many years, I was fine. I had PTSD. You'll read about it in the book. The writing process was two-faced it was very therapeutic in a sense but it had me digging into memories that I think out of self-preservation I had completely erased and as I wrote these things came back to me and often I could not sleep for days and I was mortified that I had dug them into such a dark place in my mind that I did not remember any of that. I didn't even remember that I went to prison for almost 15 months. I was saying I went to prison for a year, for many, many years. And then when I came to write the book and started to look at the timeline, I realized it was actually almost 15 months, 14 and a half months. So 
The writing process was also very therapeutic. There's so many things I understood. You will read that I had a complicated relationship with my mother, but I came to terms at the end of the book and I have a great relationship with her. Although a lot of things, you know, go unspoken and unsaid because she's now older, much older, and, you know, it, it's not the time anymore. So there's things when you write such a book that you end up working out on your own. And that writing that book did that for me, but it brought back some of the toughest, toughest memories in my life. And very often I would just go and hug my kids after I wrote certain chapters. A lot of things came back to the surface that I had bottled inside of me. So that was pretty insane and very difficult. Also, I'm not an author. I'm a good writer. I was always great at that. I did amazing in law school because of this. And even in my literary classes, when I lived in France and studied in France, I'm just really good at writing, but I'm not an author. So as you read my story, you will notice that I drastically improve in my storytelling and writing uh, skills. However, I wrote the book, I think it took me three years to write the book, and it wasn't three straight years. I started to write the first chapters like four years ago, and I stopped for quite some time because it was getting to the difficult point. So before chapter six. And then chapter five was when I got back into writing. So it took me like a whole year to get back into writing. And actually, when I worked with my editor, she said that I repeated myself a lot. So for example, I'll give you an example. When I said I lost all my lashes crying, I said that again. So she, when she read the finished product, she goes, I don't understand why there's so much of the same information you repeat in chapter three and chapter six or chapter two and chapter seven. And I explained to her that I stopped writing for a year after I wrote these first few chapters because it was too hard to go down memory lane. And so she had to do some editing work as far as not repeating the same thing twice. But trying to stay true to the range of motion that I was telling my story at. And, you know, there, there were, there's a few things I would maybe have done different. The, the process of writing is very humbling, but it's also when it's your story and it's such a tough story to tell and a story that a lot of people try to own the narrative of because they consider that I'm a criminal and, some of them call me a fugitive. We know who they they want to tell your story. And so many people have gossiped and tried to tell my story. So when you are sitting there writing your story and owning your narrative and owning your story, it's a very difficult position you're in, very vulnerable. And writing these chapters had me ending my days on vulnerability hangovers and thinking thinking about certain things over and over. But writing the book has also given me so much resolve. For example, with my ex-husband, Joe, I've understood so many things. So you will notice at the beginning of the book, I'm very angry with him and I make you hate him. But by the end of the book, you actually love the guy because I got to experience this life 
of experience married to him, then divorced from him. And then of course, going through prison and all of that. And we didn't get divorced because I went to prison. We stayed together three more years after that. I came to understand so many things. I matured, I grew him and I, you know, exchanged a lot since. And so you will realize that what you may have thought would end up in a disastrous relationship with an ex-husband ends up with a beautiful story of, you know, love that's still there and for someone that's still my family. So the book has done that for me. It's given me a lot of resolve, but the process is very difficult. It's a lot of vulnerability hangovers. It's being tricked by your memory. And that's why at the beginning of the book, I had to put a sort of disclaimer that says, I've tried to recreate events, locales, conversations from my memories of them in order to maintain anonymity. In some instances, I've changed the names of individuals and places, and I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as certain events, legal facts, physical properties, occupations, places of residence, and other circumstances. The reason for the disclaimer originally wasn't to cover myself legally. It was mainly because I realized that things were not exactly as I remembered. And the more I wrote the book, the more I had to go back onto earlier chapters to edit with the real memories that I had really buried inside of me as a way to self-preserve. And actually towards the last chapters of the book, particularly like chapter 17, things came back and I was fucking shocked. I did not remember them. There's a whole chapter where I talk about being transferred back to Virginia because I was remanded in front of the judge when I won my appeal. Part of the transfer back that took a few weeks, I did not remember what I had been put through. And it was awful. It was like really awful treatment. I don't want to give in everything that's in the book and that's in much later chapters. But this question asking me about the process of writing the book it's a fucking hard process. It's hard. If you're writing your, your life story and your life has been colorful and painful, it's a fucking difficult process. But you should do it with hope because it has given me a lot of healing and resolve at the same time. The hardest part of it is the vulnerability and the exposure and having to work through shit by yourself. I hope that answers the question. I love the next question. It's so smart. How did you heal your freight cortisol levels after prison, divorce, etc.? You know, it's a good question. And at the time, I wasn't as concerned with my cortisol levels as I was with having enough sanity to rebuild my children's life, which my incarceration almost destroyed. And so I had to deal with so many feelings, guilt, fear, being terrified and anxious of being taken away again, being paranoid, you know, a lot of PTSD. And I came out with kidney failure also. You, you come out of prison or, you know, this is for another podcast episode, but there, there has to be some prison reforms that have to happen. The prison system is very cruel we're treated like animals, we're stripped of way more 
than our freedoms. When you got when you go to prison, it's your freedom that should be taken away, not your human rights. And a lot of my human rights and other inmates, most inmates' human rights are stripped away from them, and that's horrible. So when you come out, you are you know your cortisol levels are the the least of your worry, but. Just to give you an example, since we always talk about hormones, I lost my period. Of course, I you know I went down to basically eighty pounds. I lost my period. I was losing my hair a lot. Um, so the way that I decided to regain healthy levels, especially cortisol levels, was to say no a lot. I learned to say no to many, many things that I didn't have to deal with. I cut out people that didn't need to be in my life and didn't bring anything but negativity. I stopped saying yes to doing things I didn't want to do and didn't have to do. I learned to say no to a lot of things. And, you know, it was the same thing with divorce. My divorce was one of the best divorces if you can say that, because Joel, my ex-husband, had only one goal, and it was to not separate me from my children. So he wasn't great as far as he didn't help us financially. So I, I struggled a lot financially, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't great to the kids. He wasn't calling them. He relinquished his rights to fatherhood. But later on, I understood this was all for me to never take my kids away from me. And you'll read that in the book. There's a lot of resolve as far as that. And, you know, why the man I thought was a horrible father turned out to be not a great father, but a very good human. Um, But the cortisol level thing with the divorce was mainly to stop the cycle. For 17 years, I was married to a man that was not for me. And even though there was love, there was some happiness, beautiful children born from it. He was not for me. And I waited 17 years thinking things are going to change. When I got divorced, the way to preserve my cortisol levels, my freight cortisol levels were to say no more, no more getting into relationships with someone that I hope changes. No more having a friend or a family member that doesn't serve me and that hurts me. No more, you know, having Shabbat dinners, which I started to hate, the Jewish tradition. And, you know, it it was very imposed on me. Jew became extremely religious and imposed that religion so badly on me. So all the things I hated to do, I stopped doing. And I think that this is something I still practice so much today. And I transmit to you guys, my audience um, and my followers. I always tell you, like, if something is not um, an imperative, just say no, don't do it. You know, you don't need to have the bell chiming so loud. You don't need to eat in very, very loud places. You don't need to keep a friend that is upsetting you constantly. There's nothing that you have to do unless it is an absolute imperative, like a job that's paying your bills. And even though it's making you quite unhappy at the time, you might have to do it. That's something we can't help. 
you know, our responsibilities, we can't say no to. But everything else around it, that's an accessory and that is an unnecessary accessory, you get rid of it. And for me, this is what prison did for me. It taught me to, you know, cut through the bullshit. I hope that makes sense as an answer. I decided to take a last question from the Gangster Chic Secret group on Facebook because there's a super cute book club that was started by Natalia Lauren Blasio, House Lauren, and Trisha Jacob, and Adaletta. Um, and so they, they started this cute book club, and I, I haven't been following the whole schedule, but they've asked some really tough questions, and I decided to shout them out. You should definitely join the secret group if you haven't yet. And the questions are there somewhere, and you could reach out to possibly Natalia or Adaletta, and they can guide you on how this book is happening, but this book club is happening. But they asked question number two, if you found out tomorrow you were going to prison, how would you get your affairs in order? What would be the few things you check off the list and do before you turn yourself in? Would you read about how prison works and perhaps and prepare yourself for what's to come? I think this is an amazing question and I wanted to answer it. Not that I think anyone is planning on going to prison, but I have to tell you, sharing my story the way that I have for the past few years and, you know, owning my narrative, I've had so many women and some men and also children of incarcerated parents, like, but older children, like adult children of incarcerated parents come up to me and say that what I'm doing by owning my narrative is very much helping them. And they are, there has been a few people like me who have been found guilty and have been asked to turn themselves into federal prison. And then they ended up finding my account on Instagram and seeing my story and said, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to turn myself in on such and such day and I'll be thinking about you and what can you tell me? I think that, you know, you, you can go in completely blind the way that I did. I didn't know where to find resources to find out what prison was like, but also... I was so dumbfounded that I was even going to prison for that crime, to federal prison, like medium high security prison. That, and I listened to my lawyers. We, we had all these amazing lawyers, this huge team of lawyers who were like, this is not even like really a crime. Like you're not, you know, we're going to get you out. You're going to win your appeal. You'll be out in a few days. I went in completely delusional. So one thing that you need to know already is if you've been sentenced and the judge sending you to prison and telling you to, remind yourself to the facility don't go in like me completely delusional thinking you'll be going out within a few days because that's impossible the procedure is really long and when a federal judge sends you to prison it's really really hard to overturn his decision mine took one year in front of the fourth circuit court in the united states so don't go in delusional just go in thinking for the best Maybe you'll do less time, but definitely not going for a few days because what I did was horrible. And I just went through the shock over and over again that I wasn't going home like every day. Every day I would hear my name on the loudspeaker 
for visits or to report to my counselor or to report to my case manager. And I would think, oh my God, they're calling me because I'm being released. It's not like that and it doesn't work like that. So go in with complete lucidity and hope for the best. I'm not saying you should be pessimistic thinking if you got 10 years that you're going to do 10 years or, you know, but be lucid because that, that shock every time you're not going out is just so damaging. Um, but as far as preparing yourself, yes, you should get your business in order. You should get, you know, reach out to people that are going to be looking for you because I realized that by not warning people that were important in my life, like my best friend Valerie and my best friend Julie at the time, or even my boyfriend at the time, because I, I had an affair with someone that was important in my life. Um, and I, I didn't tell him anything. I told him I was going to see my mother in France, who's not feeling well, and I would be back soon. And that, that was just horrible. Not only it's deceiving, uh, it's like people trust you even less because then they find out you're in prison and you completely lie to them, which was so shitty. Um, and I did that because I really didn't believe I was going to stay in prison for that long. I thought I was going in for a day or two and then my lawyers would, you know, work things out for me. Um, and so you disappear for month and month and month and people have resources and they find out where you are. Even if there's no gossip, they find out where you are. You, you don't want to, you know, you, you need to sort shit out before you go in. And definitely don't watch TV shows. Don't watch Orange is the New Black. Don't watch shit like that. But if you could get a book like mine or, you know, um, there's that book I just listened to, the Skinny Confidential podcast, and they had that guy on. He wrote the Spray Pepper Diet. He talks about the conditions as well. And maybe it's very scary because he was in a male prison. So if you're a male, maybe you want to read that. And then if you're a female, you might want to read my book or a softer version of what really happens. But I mean, even when you read it in my book, it's quite scary. But I think it's better to know about these things. These things you need to know going in, like you need to, you know, look down and like you need to not associate with a lot of people. You can't talk about your case. Like there's no one that gives you a handbook. There's no orientation. I actually say that on chapter six. So without driving yourself nuts um, with anticipation of horror, you, you, you want to find the right resource, the right book. And if you can find a book that has a good ending, kind of like mine, where I survived prison, then that's the book you should be reading. You know, like how, like survival guide. Um, and I think that that answers that question. Um, what, what would be a few things off the list that you do before you turn yourself in? I would tell you this. I would say your relationships, the ones that are important to you. Um, teaching your kids to survive without you teaching them some survival skills and skills of hope, teaching them things that still connect you to them. Like my kids and I had this thing about, we had this sentences of survival of things that, that connected us. Like I love you all the way to the moon and the stars in the sky and Hashem and all the way back to earth. And like, but Buzz Lightyear and, you know, all these things. And so 
teach your children some survival skills like that and things that keep you connected. Um, but then again, I, I'm hoping that this whole question and advice is going to no one that's listening. I don't wish this on my worst enemy, especially if she is a parent. On this note, I hope that this episode gave you a little bit of insight into Fuck My Life, my book. If you haven't read it, please read it. If you've read it, please go on Amazon and leave um, leave me some feedback. Leave, some, leave um, a review. It's super important to have the reviews to the book and keep thriving and more people could read the story. There's a lot that went into writing this book. Um, a lot of emotions, a lot of vulnerability, but also, you know, a lot. Like I worked with an editor and I'm actually so disappointed with the work she's done. There's so many errors in the book. So if you read the book and you found that some of the errors like are, you know, there, I know, and we're going to work on a new edition with a different editor. The one that I worked with actually worked with one of my very good friends who's a best, a New York Times bestseller. And I, and this writer is, this editor is actually a New York Times bestseller as well. And as much as she worked well with me, I cannot believe the spelling errors that were left in the book and some, you know, stuff. But we're working on a new edition that will correct that. But that aspect of writing the book is also really hard to, once you've written it, give it to an editor and have the editor question you and want to change some of your way of thinking even like um, this this part where she said I find that you're a little bit harsh with um, the, your Jewish community where you lived in New York and I said yeah because that's how I felt at the time but as you read the book you will find that there is resolve and I matured and I saw them under a different eye and you know I changed my mind and I but I this was hard, like the whole editing aspect. Um, I feel like you need like three different editors, but you know, there's a lot of money that goes into publishing a book, obviously. And my favorite, favorite part was working with my husband to shoot the cover of Fuck My Life. And if you haven't, it's on Instagram on my IGTV. There's the making of Fuck My Life um, that was filmed by Konyo Prod who is Anthony Stahas. He is so talented. He works on every single one of Jill's shoots. Uh, if you don't know about Jill, my husband, he is a movie producer. He's an executive producer. And before that, he was a first assistant director for so many American movies that you watch, like Inception, um, Midnight in Paris, He's done a few uh, a few movies with Woody Allen. He was his first AD in France. So he's extremely talented and he's a movie maker. Um, and I had the honor of having him really bring my vision to life. The second I started writing this book, I already knew I was going to call it Fuck My Life because it's basically the, the sentence I was saying the whole time. I was going through this fucking life of mine. It's like, fuck my life. Like, what the fuck? Fuck my life. I knew this was going to be my title and I already knew exactly what I wanted the cover to look like. And when I look at the cover that it is today, it's exactly the image I had in my my head four years ago when I started the process of writing this book. And that's all thanks to Jill. Jill has, you know, a director that comes to him or, you know, uh, 
an advertising team that comes to him and says, okay, this is our vision. They give him a vision board and he makes it happen and it happens on film. And that's what he did. And so he was the executive producer on the cover of Fuck My Life and Anthony from Conio Prod, who also, because he's become a friend over the years working for Jill and he's like the best in the business, he does all of his behind the scenes, making of and all of that. Um, he also did my wedding. He came to Sambards to do my wedding video. Um, so he filmed the whole process and we did a making of where you really get a feel. And I have to say that was my favorite, but also most chilling process because we shot it in a prison in Grasse here, uh, in the South of France in an old prison, but it had like still the whole setup and the cells, like we had a few cells that we could choose from. I, I got to choose the decor myself. So it was incredible and it was chilling at the same time. And it was amazing for me to have my husband, um, be the executive producer of this shoot and I think that was my favorite process in the whole book the worst part was releasing the book and seeing the sales happening knowing that all these people are getting their hands on my real story and are going to read my story and judge me or this was difficult it, there's a lot of vulnerability involved but I hope I gave you enough of an insight on the whole process and you know, I think I will do another few episodes, not one after the other, but, you know, over, over the next few months. Um, so let me know if you liked this audible reading of a chapter and then narration and answering some questions. Should we do it again? Let me know. Go on my, my latest post and let me know what you think. Um, whoever writes me on my latest post, post about this podcast what was your favorite part of this episode will get a signed copy of fuck my life with a little gangster chic gift shipped sent to them so um go comment on my latest post and let me know what your favorite part of this podcast was and if we should do it again uh and why and you may receive these gifts on this note i wish you a beautiful day wherever you are bisu bisu from monaco Wait, before you go, don't forget to visit our Gangster Chic shop. The link is in the show notes. We have a bunch of amazing new products. One of them is incredible. It's my Moroccan Amber Musk Pure Perfume Oil from Morocco, of course. It comes with a roller applicator and it has rose quartz on the bottom of it so it comes with all these benefits for anxiety gaining confidence aiding in calming and sleeping as well as some very aphrodisiac properties so make sure that you visit the store and get your little bottle of la fugitive chic on that note i'll let you go bisous bisous from monaco